Revelation 3, last, last book of the Bible. It's on page 1029 in my Bible. I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think that in the ESV, all the pages are the same no matter which um, type of ESV Bible you have. 1029 is the page in my Bible. Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars... I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because I have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So... Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my own mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. All right. Anyone under the age of 12, come with me. Little children, have fun. Everybody else, open up to Revelation chapter 3. Wim, thank you for your words and your leadership and your wisdom. I appreciate it. Uh, it is good to learn to pray the scriptures. Uh, I highly recommend that. It's, it's something that, you know, we, we sit down to pray to God, and a lot of the time, Lucy's really having a tough time. <laughs> Lucy, what are you doing, girl? Um, a lot of the times when we don't have words to say, it's good to have the scriptures to know how to pray and what to say. Hey, Lucy, you're making this really awkward, girl. Could you just go to class? Thank you. <laughs> She's our drama queen. Um, we just roll with it here at Flat Rock. Thanks, Nat. And then we've got the stroller. It's just, we got it going on. If you don't feel welcome and at peace here at Flat Rock, then we don't know what, what to do for you. Um, yeah, so praying the scripture is a really good, healthy thing to do. Uh, recommend it. Um, for Revelation chapter 3, we're continuing our series, uh, A Vision We Can All Understand. Why, why I chose that title is because Revelation is not really trying to hide anything. Although a lot of times we read it as this mysterious book with a Dakota ring that's necessary. It's not at all what it's meant to be. It's meant to be an unveiling and a revealing of who Jesus is. And I say that every week because it's a good reminder, especially for those of us who are visiting or new. We're glad you're here if you're visiting. Um, but this is what we believe about Revelation. We're, we're not trying to decode this thing. We're trying to show the simple beautiful picture of Jesus and his love for the church throughout history, past, present, and future, and how we can trust him as our God to guide and lead Flat Rock. Um, and the application for the churches, the seven churches in these letters to the seven churches are meant to be applicable to us even today. Uh, and that's why seven churches are chosen, because that seven is a number of completion, and it's meant to represent the whole. So what he says to these seven churches is advice for the church universal. Um, and there's a lot for us to learn from it um, this morning. So let me pray, and we'll get started. Lord, I do thank you for um, this church. I thank you that you work amidst our awkwardness, our failures, our uh, inadequacies, that you have a good purpose uh, for this body that is gathered together. Lord, we want to be a church that honors you, that make, makes much of your name, a church that is a sweet aroma to you, that is pleasing to you. Uh, and we seek your counsel and your wisdom through your word. We believe your word is our authority. Everything in your word uh, is true. And so we want you to do surgery on our hearts this morning, on our minds, Lord, that we might see, that we might understand our blind spots and our weaknesses. We might see our strengths, Lord, in the ways in which they blind us to the ways of pride. Uh, we need your help. Speak to us by the power of your spirit for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. What number are you? Many of us have heard that question. 
uh, in our culture today. What number are you? I can't hardly go a week as a pastor without someone asking me what number I am. And of course, we know that they are referring to the popular Enneagram, which I personally love and many of us in this room have benefited from. Um, The Enneagram is this old and ancient, mysterious personality assessment and gift inventory tool to help us understand who we are and how we function in relationship to each other and our strengths and our own weaknesses. In the culture that we live in, it's some, we're somewhat obsessed, really, in this day and time with self-examination and self-assessment, with a vast array of personality tests and gift inventories at our disposal, whether it's the Enneagram or I love the Myers-Briggs, that's what I was trained in seminary, or the DISC inventory, or Winslow, or Team Ability, which we use here at Flat Rock. We know how to do self-examination really well. In fact, it's rare for me to find myself in a conversation nowadays that doesn't actually lead to a discussion on the Enneagram. There's been a massive resurgence in this helpful self-assessment tool in recent years, um, even though it's an ancient invention. And I've joked about how helpful um, it would be we could all just walk around with that our number somehow visible for all people to see. So I know that when a three is walking up to me, I can feel compassion for them because they're probably exhausted from performing all the time and achieving. Um, Adam is self-identifying as a three. Um, I know we have many threes in the room. Or I can see an eight walking towards me and I can turn and walk the other way because... <laughs> They are typically quite intimidating and very bold in their assessments. Or I can see a nine coming to me and feel at peace, knowing I'm probably going to receive encouragement. I'm a nine. So um, if you see me coming, uh, know everything's going to be okay. Uh, The nine is the peacemaker, the three, the achiever, the eight, the challenger. Uh, The two is the helper. Um, We see them coming. We know help's on the way. And I'm joking, but... You get the point. In a culture that's, that's, that's better at self-evaluation than any in history, it's really a wonder to me that we aren't better at evaluating the institutions that we commit ourselves to, particularly the church. I had a seminary professor who actually, I think, was onto something. He had invented a way. Um, he was kind of a Myers-Briggs expert, and he invented a way to assign a Myers-Briggs personality to a church. And then he would meet with us as we were graduating seminary, and he would try to help us mat- match us as we were looking for jobs with our, per- our personality type, with the, a personality type that was compatible with us, that was the, you know, he had labeled with this church. And for, unfortunately, there's, there was, at the, I think at the time, there was like 5,000 uh, or f- 15,000 pastors and 5,000 jobs. So we didn't really have that luxury of ex- getting those exact matches, even though we really wanted to. But... He was on to something. He, he had a way to examine and do self-assessment for the church and for uh, this corporate structure as a whole, and it was helpful for us to figure out how we would work in those structures. And I think Jesus, really here in Revelation 3, being the wise counselor that he is, gives some really helpful self-assessment tools for these seven churches that are meant to represent the church as a whole, as I said earlier. And you could almost put a number next to each church, one through seven, and assign a number to any church, or Flat Rock in particular, that one of these churches is like. So maybe we're like Church 7, which is the church in Laodicea. Maybe we're like, you know, Church, church 4, which is the church in um, Sardis. 
Are we like the church in Smyrna? Are we like the church in Philadelphia? Jesus has some really sobering words. I mean, you know, Wim, <laughs> Wim emphasized that when Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, this, is, this is very, very sobering words for Jesus about what he thinks of the church in Laodicea and how they're struggling. So um, Jesus is trying to give a helpful and sobering self-assessment for each of these churches that's meant to help them understand both their strengths and their weaknesses. The title of the sermon today is Beware by Being Aware. And uh, I think Flat Rock, it would do us some good as we examine these churches that we did last week and we continue to do this week to figure out what do we need to beware of. And a lot of times it's not just our weaknesses, but more importantly, it's our strengths. Because our strengths are actually what can actually cause blind spots and pride to creep into how we do church. We can start to think that we've arrived. You know, some of, some of uh, the churches that are in the greatest danger are the churches that are the most successful, the churches that grow the fastest, the churches that have the best programs, because they begin to think that they are, they're achieving it somehow on their own, by their own power and might. And Jesus is very quick to guard against that. And he does this in a really incredible way. As he says really hard things, he also says them with a lot of love and compassion. And we can learn a thing or two about how we communicate to each other about the strengths and the weaknesses of our own church and even for each other as individuals as we relate to each other inside the church. So with that in mind, and in an attempt to keep things, I think, as simple as possible, let's do some self-assessment this morning by looking at both the concerns and encouragement Jesus has for these three churches. And we'll just go one letter at a time and look at the strengths and weaknesses and what we can learn from it and be aware of ourselves. So first, the church in Sardis. You look with me at verses 1 through 2 there in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. Remember, he's writing to what I believe are the pastors of the churches, because that term angel actually means messenger, and I think that um, these are the people who are leading these churches, and Jesus is giving a word to them on what to say to them. Um, the words of him, he begins by saying, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, this is really important to emphasize here that Jesus doesn't just immediately cut to the chase and start telling them everything they're doing wrong, right? He wants them to know the source of where this message is coming from. And that's why he's always telling them before, at the beginning of these letters, exactly who it is that's telling them this. The one who is, who is delivering this message is the very God of the universe. The one who holds the seven spirits, the one who has the Holy Spirit is what that means who sees all and knows all. And what he's saying is what you're doing, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't go past my notice. It doesn't go unnoticed. I notice what you're doing. I care about you as the church. I care about how you operate and how you love the community and how you value things and devalue things. And he's saying I'm also one with the seven stars. I'm the one who holds the church in the palm of my hand. This is the one who's offering you insight. So he's saying I'm worthy for you to listen to. And if I say it, it must be important. Jesus goes on to say, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's a strong critique, right? You can't get more dead than dead, right? Dead is unresponsive. Dead is not offering life to anyone in your domain. And Jesus is saying, you were once alive, offering life to the culture and to the world and to your neighbor, but now you are dead. So what in the world happened? 
That's what they should be asking themselves. If Jesus is saying we are now a dead church, what in the world are we going to do? And I love that even in Jesus' letters here with these strong critiques, the gospel is always there because there's always grace for these churches. And Jesus, as we'll read later, is doing this in love to discipline the churches. He's doing this, he's saying these strong things to bring them back into a place of repentance and change. So what caused this church to be labeled as dead? The church had this reputation of offering life. And I think to understand, to answer that, um, we're not really told exactly what they were doing or not doing. But maybe this church had great programs. Maybe they were, had a lively worship service. Maybe they were bringing a bunch of people in. Maybe they were growing and influencing the culture. And then somehow this stopped. Because what they probably started to do was to become what many churches uh, have a tendency to do, which is become really insulatory. To begin to look inward and no longer outward, as we talked about last week, how easy it is for Flat Rock, because we do have to set up systems and structures and all of these things for how we work internally, but we can do that at the expense of looking outwardly. And somehow you have to keep those things in tension as a church. It's one of the hardest things to do as a church. It's very easy to go one way or the other. It's very easy to become all about self-preservation, because doing church is difficult against a culture that doesn't really appreciate it or doesn't desire what you are offering. And so you always feel like you're swimming upstream. And so it's easy to begin to look internally to the people that do agree with it and do like it and just base your success on that. And I think this church in particular in Sardis is more in danger of being influenced by the culture than actually influencing the culture. And that may be what has happened with them. A little history lesson here is necessary. This is actually pretty cool how Jesus uses his instruction based upon the history of the city where each of these churches is. For instance, Sardis was this impressive city that was up on a hill and it had huge walls and it was essentially thought to be impenetrable. It was this fortress, this beautiful beacon of light up on this hill that overlooked the valleys and the other towns and villages. And people looked up to this city and all of its brilliance and they knew that it was rarely, if ever, attacked. And so they had a lot of security and a lot of peace. But in 546 B.C., everything changed. Cyrus of Persia, he besieged the city, believing that he could actually overcome it. And they were trying to figure out a way in as they surrounded the city. And a Persian soldier named Herodias saw a Sardian soldier up on the wall keeping guard. It's interesting that they kept guard, even though they thought that they couldn't ever be attacked, but they knew that they were being surrounded. And so this guard is standing up on the wall, and being maybe not very well trained, he uh, loses his helmet over the wall, and it shows you kind of like the lackadaisicalness of how they kept guard, and he's even losing the things that are meant to protect him. He loses his helmet, and this Persian soldier watches him drop his helmet down this huge 100-foot wall and then scale down the wall to get it and then scale back up the wall to get back in. And the whole, this entire army is looking on and they realize that's how you get in. He just showed us the way in. And so uh, Cyrus of Persia invades Sardis and they devastate the city. And this would actually happen again 200 years 
later with Alexander the Great's generals. And so you see that the church in Sardis had become too much like the city that they inhabited. They thought they were secure because of their good works or their great programs, large numbers, when in fact it says they had soiled their garments, which is humiliating, right? Peeing your pants is not cool. And they had basically defiled themselves in embarrassment because they didn't think that they needed anything. They thought they had arrived, if you will. And so they began valuing the wrong things and making those wrong things ultimate. We all know that it's easy as a church to think that we've, had, that we've arrived, especially the more successful we are. And maybe this church had become all name and no reality. Maybe they had become all reputation and no life. Maybe there were lots of activity and people in great programs, but no real transformation. Maybe, and this is, I think, really applicable to us today here in Nashville, maybe they had assumed that they were Christians by association. Many of us assume we are Christians simply based on the color of our skin or where we live or the size of our bank accounts or how many times we attend church. And we are sadly mistaken. It's very easy to go day to day assuming that you are just culturally Christian. Assuming you're a Christian when you're just culturally Christian because of who you associate with. And that is putting value on the wrong things. And Jesus does not like that. He is not impressed. I think in Nashville, it's easy for a church to place too much value on our musical abilities, on our fashion, on our wealth, on being cool and trendy and attractive and safe. The list goes on. You can fill in the blank. What are we susceptible to here in Nashville based upon the city that we live in? And what do we do if we are susceptible? And that's, this is what I love about these letters. Jesus doesn't just give the critique. He also offers the solution. And the solution is not complicated at all. It's actually rather simple, but it's complicated for us because of the condition of our hearts. He says three things. He says, remember, repent, and then remember, and then look to the three people or few people who are left in your church who actually have the right vision for what the church should be and are living as they're meant to live. And this is really encouraging because of what, what it's saying is, remember what you received and heard. Go back to the gospel. Always go back to the gospel. When in doubt, go back to what it means to be a church of grace and a church of compassion and a church of mercy for your neighbor a church that offers forgiveness, a church that is hospitable as Jesus has been hospitable to us, to remember that they are saved by grace, to level the playing field, to begin to identify with the needs of the people around them. And he says, second, repent. These churches have lost their way because they have not repented and sought renewal. They have not turned to face Jesus. And he's going to talk about that with the church of Laodicea and what that actually means towards the end. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. But that's the nature of riding the ship is through repentance, first and foremost. So are we a repentant congregation? Where is repentance taking place amongst us? And then Jesus tells them, remember uh, or look for these people who have been obedient. And I love this part because it's another powerful reminder for us that the few who remain obedient matter to the whole. 
So in other words, even if you're one of the few who gets in a church and it's lost its way, it's actually worth sticking around to intercede for that church and see that change by the power of the Spirit happens. We need people like that all the time. I call this being part of the solution and not part of the problem. And it's very easy to be part of the problem in a church. It's very easy to notice the problem. I think the church is probably maybe the most easily critiquable institution in the world. We all have our preferences. We all see what we like and what we don't like. And in our sinfulness, it's very easy to place the focus on everything we don't like about the church. And then to begin to kind of either tear it apart silently or to begin to kind of recruit a small majority to follow what we believe is wrong. When really what God is calling us to is courageous obedience and faithfulness to see that the church be reformed and changed. If we have the vision, a lot of people come to me and they'll say something to the effect of like, you know, a critique might be, we're not reaching out to the community enough. Like, okay, well, what do you think we should do? Well, I don't know, you're a pastor, like, you figure it out. Like, why are you here? Why are you a member of this church? If you see a problem, instead of just bringing it to and just laying it at our feet as if, I see this problem now, I don't know what to do. Why don't we offer to pray and to seek community within that and, and, and seek a solution together? And it's very easy for us not to do that, but just to kind of point fingers and say what's wrong. God shows that he will spare many for the sake of one. And we saw that with Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in the gospel, as that story is meant to remind us of that. And it also reminds us that our obedience matters and affects more than just ourselves, but our whole community around us. That, that's what I need to hear every day. Because there's a really helpful question um, that I like to ask myself, what's at stake? Whenever I'm tempted, what's at stake? And usually the answer to that question at this stage of my life is everything. <laughs> Everything's at stake. When is the last time you asked yourself something similar? When is the last time you saw your obedience as mattering to the whole? That we are all benefiting from your desire to please God. That's what's really going to bring a church together. Is when we begin to encourage that and take inventory of that and care for each other in that way. That it also helps us if you see someone who is unrepentant, someone who is living in unrepentance, and that like Jesus chasing after the lost sheep, we go and chase after that person and we care about how they live in relationship to Jesus. We don't just say, we don't just throw them out. We don't just say, if you can't, if you can't get your act together, then you can't be a part of this. We pursue the misfits and we encourage those who are obedient. And for those who hear this warning, Jesus says they can have their assurance restored. This is really important to me. This is something that I've really noticed in my own life. It means that when we live in unrepentant sin, one of the main things we lose is our assurance and our confidence as Christians. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation entirely, but we lose the assurance of it, which leads us with little confidence in the Lord and in ourselves to be who God desires us to be. God doesn't take this from us. We rob ourselves of it. And when we repent and live in obedience, that assurance and confidence in the Lord is restored in full. That's part of our reward. 
That's why he's saying the crown will not be removed from you. You will know that it's there. You will have full assurance of it. And it will change the way you think about temptation and the things that the world values versus the things that, things that God values. So that's the church in Sardis. Again, next, let's look at the church in Philadelphia. You know, this letter is unique in that Jesus has no real concerns for this church, in particular to what they're doing wrong. He's really encouraged about what they're doing right, but he is concerned with how they view themselves as being successful or unsuccessful according to what the culture values. So this church really is the struggling church or the weak church, where the church in Sardis may be labeled as the dead church. This would be the weak church. But it's good that they're weak, and they don't recognize that. They're not doing proper self-examination. They think that because they don't have what the world values, that somehow they're not being the church that they need to be. And Jesus is coming in with these words of encouragement. He says, I know you have little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, I know you have little influence. I know you think what you're doing is not doing anything. But be encouraged that you have kept my name and you have stayed bold and courageous in your proclamation of the gospel and the truth. And if you're doing that, you can know that I am with you and that I'm pleased with you as a church. How encouraging should that be to us? I mean, we are a small church plant, recently planted church recently particularized church, still trying to grow and to become a beacon of light in this community and to affect change. And yet we struggle. We have people leaving and people going. We have small Sundays and big Sundays. We have encouraging programs and well-attended events and not well-attended events. It, see, it appears at times that we are weak. What are we doing? We can know that we are doing the right thing if we are holding true to the Word of God if we are preaching the scriptures, if we are praying together, if we are gathering together, if we are repenting with one another, we can know that what we are doing for the time that we are doing it is good. And the assurance is whether we have to close the doors here one day or not, that God has a purpose for what we're doing, whether we can see it or feel it or experience it or not. It should be deeply encouraging to us to have the courage to continue to do what it is God has called us to do. Jesus says, for this weak church, he's actually doing something quite incredible. He says, I'm opening a door for Jews who persecute the church to come to salvation. What does he, what does he call them? I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn of the love of Jesus. In their weakness, they are actually strong. And God is going to do an incredible work to bring people to salvation. This is the beauty of church planning, actually. It is believed that more people come to Christ, to faith in Christ, in the first few years of a church plant than they do in the next 20, combined. That's why we need church plants. That's why we can never plant enough churches. I think you could plant a church in every apartment building in Nashville. Because there's so many people moving here, the city is growing so much, it's believed that over 75% of our population is either de-churched or unchurched. So this work is valuable. It's not just about what we're doing here. We're not trying to be the biggest, baddest show in town, like I said. We're trying to be a church that replicates and plants other churches to get into these neighborhoods and communities or apartment complexes to be an agent of change 
And we're meant to be encouraged by that, that through that, God will bring people into saving knowledge of himself. And then he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. What that's saying is it's kind of confusing because what we've said before is that Jesus is actually not going to deliver us from the tribulation, but he's going to deliver us through the tribulation. So there will always be tribulation, I believe, in the last days for the church. And what Jesus is really saying, I believe, is that the church is going to be protected. Although they appear weak, they are strong because Jesus is the one protecting them and keeping them. So while they appear vulnerable to the community, they're actually being strengthened by the foundation, the gospel. And Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Obviously, he did not come soon in their time, in our estimation of time. But what we know is that a thousand years are but a day, and but a day are a thousand years to God. And he views time differently. He views us outside of time. And so he wants the church, just as this is meant to be application for the church universal, he wants all of us to operate as though he's coming soon. Live as a church and love your neighbor as though I'm coming back today. That is the hardest application Jesus could possibly give for the church. That is a, that is a massive challenge. It's easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day operations of the church, to get distracted by things that don't really matter. But to live as though he's coming back any other day, what would that do to transform Flat Rock? What would that look like at Flat Rock or any church? And for Philadelphia, like Sardis, there is this cultural application and this irony that Jesus uh, addresses. Earthquakes were kind of known to happen a lot uh, in Philadelphia, and they suffered a devastating one 50 years prior where the entire city was destroyed, and it was rebuilt by money given by the Roman emperor Tiberius. And after the earthquake, the city was renamed as they were trying to like rebuild it and re-sculpt it and have a vision for it. They renamed it uh, a few times, just like this neighborhood we're in. It's been renamed over the years from Flat Rock to Woodbine and so on and so forth. And so um, the, the, as, the, as the city changed and was being rebuilt, it was renamed. And Jesus is saying that this weak church will be strengthened and protected by Jesus himself, and the believers within it will be empowered to endure on into the new heavens and the new earth, in which they will be with God in his presence forever. They will not be renamed, as they have received an eternal name, showing whom they belong to and where their citizenship lies. And that's meant to be incredibly encouraging, because it means that even if their church is destroyed, Jesus will remember their name. So even if the work here doesn't last, God knows what we're doing. He's intimately equated with the work of his church. So the danger of this church doesn't lie so much in their pride that makes them blind, but in their believing their circumstances make them ineffective. When in fact, God loves to use the humble people of the world to shame the strong. And that should be deeply encouraging to us as well. Comparison to other churches will steal our joy, right? God can work mightily through humble and meager efforts, even at Flat Rock. And then lastly, this church in Laodicea. What's interesting about Laodicea is as a city, they experienced a great earthquake themselves and it was completely destroyed. And the Roman emperor offered them money to completely restore the city. And they said, no, we don't need your money. They actually have a motto in Laodicea, which is, we need nothing. No joke. That was their motto. We need nothing. Because it was this banking center that had a ton of money. And because they, uh, they were known for their ophthalmology schools and training people on how to you know, care for the eye and see well, the irony was they had lost sight 
of their need for Jesus because they thought they had grown this church to such great strength that they didn't need anything just like the city that they were in. They had a huge budget. They had plenty of people. They were doing just fine. And what does Jesus say? He says he has his most extreme indictment of Laodicea. He says, you are lukewarm and I want to spit you out of my mouth. Again, Laodicea was situated in this place where they had, they had a lot of pride in who they were as this banking institution and this really smart place with, with this medical school and they were doing all these great things. But one thing they were deeply ashamed of, the thing they were most ashamed of, is that they did not have clean water. It's again, kind of ironic. That while they have all these things on the outside, the water running into the city that people literally have to live by is toxic. Because they didn't have their own water supply, they got water from two different cities. And one was Hierapolis, which uh, flowed um, uh, warm water down. And then one was Caesarea, which was uh, flowing this, this ice-cold, clean, pure water in. And they built these aqueducts to get water into the city. But the problem was that while, while, by the time that the water got into the city, it was toxic. It had collected too many chemicals, and it had become lukewarm. And so the one purpose they had for the water supply that was in the city was for sewage and to be used for what's called retching or throwing up. And so it was only used for that medicinal purpose of if you were sick and you needed to throw up, drink some of the water. And Jesus is saying, if you continue to believe that you have no need for me, you are as good as that toxic water and I will spit you out of my mouth. So it's so brilliant that Jesus has these, these insightful and ironic applications for them that they could, they could understand that. That would hit home for them, and Jesus know, knows how to cut to the heart. What makes them lukewarm? Jesus explains that they've become rich and prosperous, believing they need nothing from God, not seeing that they're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They're completely vulnerable to the elements. I can't imagine Jesus saying that to Flat Rock. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't end there. In verse 19, he says, those whom I love. Isn't that interesting? I want to spit you out of my mouth with the way you're acting right now, the way things are going. But I love you. And I reprove and discipline the ones I love. So be zealous for me and repent. And then he says something really interesting, which I'll close with in verse 20, a verse that is taken way out of context all too often. These are used at youth rally. This verse is used at youth rallies, and it's used, um, it's used at revivals and things for people to um, think of God knocking on the door of our hearts and us having to let him in to accept Jesus into our heart to receive salvation, which I understand, and that, that makes sense on a certain level, that we, you know, we, we certainly uh, show our faith in Jesus, and it appears as though we're asking him to come in, when really what Jesus does is he takes up residence in our dead hearts and revives them to life. And so we have to think about the context in which this verse, verse twenty. Um, at which you've heard many times, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. We have to remember that Jesus is talking to, to the church. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people that already have salvation, that already have relationship with him. And he's saying, you've closed the door to me. 
And what that tells us is, as the, in the freedom that we have in Christ, we have the ability to be disobedient or obedient. And in our disobedience, we are shutting a door, we are cutting off access to the one that gives us life and direction and value. And Jesus is saying, stop doing that. Don't you see as you do that, this is what you're becoming. You become pitiable and poor and toxic. And I've noticed throughout my career as a pastor, Jesus will purge and destroy these churches. A lot of times in order to rebuild them. And it's the most painful, and if you've ever been through a church split, or you've ever seen a church just taken down to the town to the studs and then rebuilt, it is so painful. It is earth shattering. And Jesus is saying, but I will do that in love to make you the church I desire you to be. That's actually the hope we have. As much as we can screw things up here at Flat Rock, Jesus loves the church enough that he'll never give up on us. That he'll always be seeking to purge us and to correct us and to um, renew us. So it's with, with that thought of Jesus knocking on the door and coming in to dine with us that we go to the table this morning. And here's some questions just to ask yourself as we take communion. What are the things hindering the joy of the gospel from being unleashed among us at Flat Rock or in your own personal life? What strengths do we have that are creating prideful blind spots that we need to repent of? What weaknesses do we have that are creating distrust and disillusionment with how effective we can be as ministers of the gospel? What's your assessment of yourself? What's your assessment of the church that you belong to? And if you don't belong to a church, I think this is why belonging to a church is so important. Because we're committing our lives to care for it, for better or for worse, kind of like marriage. Because that's how committed Jesus is to his church, his bride. Let's pray.